regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi, listeners. This is Datacast, where I hold long, prominent, in-depth conversations with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Carlos Agola, the founder and CEO of Glint, a data visualization company based in New York City. He grew up in Washington, D.C., where he started tinkering with robots and website early on and fell in love with the intersection of art and technology. At Cornell, he studied mechanical engineering and robotics and did research in machine learning applications in robotics and art. In 2009, he joined an early robotics startup called Kiva System, where he got deep into data and analytics. After Kiva was acquired by Amazon, Carlos joined Fat Iron Health and worked on data products to help cancer centers and cancer researchers. As the head of the data insights team, Carlos grew the team to 25 people, which helped launch dozens of data products in support of Fat Iron's core data infrastructure. So Carlos, it is my great pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. Fabulous. By way of introduction, as I kind of briefly mentioned in the introduction, you grew up in DC and you had that interest in occurring with robots and website as a kid. Can you share a bit about these formative experiences of your upbringing? Yeah, so I grew up in a really fun time. We were the first generation that grew up with the internet. So I remember getting the internet as a kid playing around with websites, being able to view the source, creating like my first AOL web pages and copying people's code around and later getting into Flash and was just really interested in, was always interested in art, but was interested in how Flash, you could like code and in the same environment, draw things and create little games and websites. So I was really interested in that. This, I was in high school in the post.com bubble burst so in the early 2000s and was also just like interested in robots and like going into college assumed that the web was interesting but the way that it was going to touch the rest of the world was more interesting so was interested in robots and how technology and programming could affect the real world did you got a chance to just like building get involved with programming like even before you go to go to high school to college yeah, yeah. I was I took a CS course in high school, but even before that was hacking around with ActionScript and Flash was actually probably my first coding, which looks a lot like JavaScript and wrote a lot of PHP also, was just like really fascinated with the web and creating little web pages and hosting domains. Nothing altogether that useful, but just like coding around, submitting websites and like Flash applications to competitions. Yeah, thanks for sharing a bit about that, that uh, interest. Later on in university, you actually study mechanical and aerospace engineering, and this is at Cornell in the mid-2000s. So yeah, 
how would you describe your overall academic experience at Cornell? For instance, like what were some of the favorite classes that you took? Yeah. I went to Cornell because I think there was access to like arts and humanities classes, but it seemed like an intense engineering degree, which I wanted. I want, I didn't want to mess around too much. I wanted that a technical rigor and definitely got it at Cornell. I think probably my favorite classes were where I got to do a little bit of computer stuff. There was, took finite element analysis where you got to do some computational modeling and a bunch of MATLAB and things like that and took, I think probably my favorite class was feedback control systems and like really taught systems thinking and creating computational models for how systems work. So gravitated towards those classes. And then later on when it was, when I was taking more electives, took a couple of CS classes, evolutionary optimization and genetic algorithms and some robotics classes as well. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. And you did both your master and your bachelor at Cornell, right? And based on my research, you also did some work on ML application in robotics and art. And specifically for your master project, you build this robotic painting system called Serrat. So can you talk more about the technical details behind this project? Also, like just the motivation for building it as well. Yeah, so I took an evolutionary computation class focused on genetic algorithms. And so this was 2006, seven, and ML was not then what it is today where everybody was using tons of neural nets. All of that stuff was around back then, but the applications were a little less formalized. And took that class with Hod Lipson and Hod Lipson's research, he had a research lab called the Creative Machines Lab. It was actually called the Computational Synthesis Lab at that point. But the philosophy of the lab was really thinking about how machines and technology could be creative and did a lot of research into genetic algorithms and how they could these algorithms could come up with unexpected results that humans hadn't really preconceived and really was exploring how computers and computer systems could be creative. And I thought that was really interesting and pitched him a couple ideas on research projects. And we came up with exploring how machines could be creative in the domain of actual fine art. So mm-hmm. create artistic representations and actually execute those artistic representations. So we came up with a system which would take an input image mm-hmm. and it would, in simulation, create a bunch of potential solutions that could create a painting of that image and those solutions would all compete there would be a fitness function and an evolutionary process would unfold and it would come up with some sort of representation of that image that was good according to some optimization function and i think it was an interesting exploration when you look at it it's pretty cute compared to the dolly stuff that's going on today but it was an early exploration of how machines could be creative. And I think probably the most interesting results were when you really constrained the system. So you said, you gave an input image and you said, can you represent this in three or four or five strokes? Something that for me as a human, I, I don't know how I would do that, but the system came up with these really interesting, like really creative solutions to that. Things that like really 
sometimes abused the limitations of the actual simulated environment and just came up with really unexpected results. So yeah, it was a really fun project. Hod actually took that research and ran with it and created paintings that were just like far more sophisticated, kept working on the project probably for another five or 10 years and created some really awesome things after I left. So it was cool to see the project continue. Yeah, very cool to hear. So you described that the combination of like biological evolution and the visual arts and how the capabilities of machines can create these very interesting artistic artifacts. And to, to drop out about how you were so, so surprised by some of the results that it created. Just want to take a quick detour. I'm curious, have you been keeping in touch with application ML in visual arts lately? And how do you see that feel evolve? Yeah, I think I'm really interested in, I haven't really kept up that much with the ML applications of, of, of art, but definitely have seen the recent advances with things like Dali, which is maybe art, but like really just like visual representation. And it's incredible. Like I could have never imagined, you know, 15 years ago when I was working on this, that we could have gotten to this point. So that's been really amazing. And actually I'm not like totally into the crypto thing, but seeing a lot of the digital art just pop up on my Twitter feed and really the generative art. So the idea that it's a combination of humans, like producing some sort of algorithm or ML application and having other user input to like generate that art has been really cool to see that sort of pop up. But I have not kept deeply in, in the loop on, on those areas. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing your perspective. Libby and that. After Cornell, you moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts to work as a robotic system analyst at a then startup called Kiva System. And in fact, while doing research for this conversation, I come across this blog post that you've written that basically discuss how you build your first data market, Kiva. For reflecting back onto your time there, what was some of your responsibility during the first couple of years at Kiva? Yeah, and maybe I'll walk you through how I landed, got from Cornell to, to Kiva also. Yeah, coming out of grad school and doing all this creative work, I really wanted to work in tech somehow, but I was a mechanical engineer and the path into tech wasn't totally clear to me. I guess I could have gone to Google or tried to go to Google or something. Those companies were all pretty big at that point and didn't really feel like I would be able to express and do really creative technical work. was actually thinking about staying on as a PhD with Hod in his lab. And it was really totally by chance that I found this company, Kiva Systems, a bunch of robotics folks from Cornell, including Raft Andrea, who was one of the co-founders, Kiva had moved up and started this company. So there's a bunch of Cornell folks up there. And it was really by chance, like literally somebody from Kiva called me, cold called me and did like a phone interview, like off the cuff and said, oh, are you interested in? coming and becoming a systems analyst at this company. I went and toured, went up for an in-person interview and it was just awesome. Like they had actual robots. They were working out of a warehouse. There were like hundreds of robots just roaming around. They had a dedicated warehouse space. The problem they were working on was robotic warehouse automation 
And so it was really like collaboration of humans doing some really hard parts of that problem and robots doing other parts of it. And I thought it was just like super fascinating. So my first role was a systems analyst. So it wasn't really much robots per se. It was really trying to figure out how this whole complex system worked together. And the role of data scientists didn't even really exist back then. This was in early 2009. But really, that's what I was like trying to understand this really complex system, how all the pieces fit together and how to analyze it. So it was a really early robotic system. We'd installed it in some warehouse in central Pennsylvania. And then people had to actually operate this thing and get a lot of performance out of it. So it was a lot of going on site, talking to all the humans that were interacting with these robots and trying to figure out why the system was either performing strangely or not as expected, measuring the performance of the system, coming up with our own vocabulary for instrumenting this really complex system and trying to give tools to the people that had to manage the system so that they could effectively manage it. So less so on the actual robotic building, but more so on just analyzing the complex system surrounding the operation of this robot. Also, I think this is quite relevant, but you mentioned it earlier when talking about some of the shared rate classes at Cornell that you, uh, one of them is like the classes that on the focus on system thinking. And I, I assume that that kind of builds your interest in complexity science and how different parts of bigger system work together to contribute to final results. Yeah. And I think it's probably one of the more interesting data sets I will ever have mm-hmm. worked on because you had all these constraints and moving parts, right? Like you had low-level control systems that did things like path planning, like moving the robots around the warehouse. Then you had layers of resource allocation on top of that. And then you had the most complex thing, which is the human behavior as humans actually interacted with the robots and trying to anticipate that and model that and create optimizations around how those humans interacted with. And yeah, I thought that was the most interesting part of Part of it is that there's a ton of emergent behavior. You'd get like congestion and traffic and trying to unravel and figure out why that was happening, debug it and help our build tools so that our customers could actually debug it on their own was the interesting part of the problem. I see. So this is like the first exposure to building tools that enable other people to be more productive, right? Yeah. And I think that's when I... I think that was the realization at Kiva is that data actually made products better. It's unclear that Kiva would have been as successful of a product if we couldn't have really instrumented that that machine, that really complex machine, made tools that explained the complex dynamics to the warehouse operators. So they had to figure out there was they had maybe tens of thousands of orders that they had to get out over the next few days, and they had to figure out how the system would respond as they unleashed these orders into the system and and figure out how to optimize their inventory and other various aspects of their warehouse. Also, maybe this is a good time to double-click on the part about data as a product. And in the post that I mentioned in my question is basically we're talking about this idea of moving the conceptual notion of data as a service to data as a product. Could you yeah, just elaborate a bit more on your thinking around how companies can materialize data as a product in their day-to-day 
operation. Yeah. And actually, when I had my intro like blog post for when I was coming out with Glean later on, it was really my boss that highlighted that really I've been doing the same exact thing my entire career. I got to Kiva and my first project was actually analyzing all of the system configuration for this really complex system. And you can imagine there were literally hundreds and hundreds of dials that that tuned the various algorithms that managed this entire system. And my job was to look at our few customers, export all of that configuration data and do a review and look at where things were out of line and analyze how that was affecting performance in various aspects. And as soon as I was doing it, I was like, someone's definitely going to want to do this again. This is not the last time this is going to be useful. And so probably on the second time I had to do this analysis, I figured I, I should probably automate this and actually built a little web app that everybody could lock into and see an audit at any given point of all the system configuration, which was useful when we had those few customers in the beginning. Then when we had 20 or 30 or 40, and when we added our 41st site that, that, that we were launching, being able to like quickly look up what is the configuration for resource allocation seconds per station or like drive units that were, drive units are the name of the robots, drive unit configurations. All of this was this really complex configuration. And so I found that, okay, instead of me just like doing this thing over and over again, I'm going to build a web app. It's going to be a little product and it's going to be this really highly utilized product and the support staff would all log in, the deployment and services folks would all log in. And so that, it was an early lesson in, instead of doing a thing once, figure out if there are useful products inside of your organization and it's going to have way more utility if you can just automate that thing, build it into a little product that people can really dig into on their own. And a little bit of the data as a product thing, I think, at least the way that I think about it, really assumes self-service and it really assumes trust in the people around you. So I had to trust that the support staff was going to use this tool in the right way and that they would raise their hand and ask me questions if something didn't look right. And so it really needs a lot of trust in the organization and it assumes the best of the organization that they're going to use the data responsibly. It's very interesting to hear the perspective on how you know, adoption of a certain product required both the technical operational and organizational buy-in to ensure the successful outcome. And it sounds the whole thread of your career. We will talk a little bit more later on. I focus on data as a product to enable other folks in the organization to do a better job. And I'll be sure to include that blog post in the show notes. So any listeners interested can go back and read through that. Yeah, there was a lie on that blog post that really highlight what you said, which is you said that the process pushing for data products is the process pushing towards automation, building software and pushing towards work that used to be high marginal cost towards work with low marginal cost. So this idea of like going from ad hoc request to actual to software that can consume is very cool. Yeah. And I think I don't want to be down on the ad hoc request. To me, that's what makes it fun. That's like the exploratory research work. Like every time you have an ad hoc request, it's an opportunity to learn something new. You get to go talk to people. You get to go discover the requirements and you get to do it once. And by the way, a lot of those ad hoc requests should only be done once and you should throw it away after it's done. And it was 
just useful in a point in time, but use that as an opportunity for building actual software. Is this a decision that could be optimized or automated? Is this a tool that could be built? And always have an eye out for that. So circling back into your career, so Amazon later acquired Kiva in 2012 in an effort to make its distribution centers as efficient as possible. So could you mind kind of sharing some of your later projects working on warehouse automating distributed robots at Amazon Robotics? Yeah, so the Amazon acquisition was actually a lot of fun. There was, um, I think, a really good match in cultures, just like very driven cultures between Kiva and the Amazon folks. And I remember the Amazon team descending on Boston and like coming to the warehouse and starting to try to figure out plans for how to integrate. And there was early whispers that maybe they were just going to like take the robots and try to write their own software. It turns out like we had solved the problem pretty well at Kiva. So the first integrations into Amazon's fulfillment network were really almost like customer engagements where we installed a system, we integrated with their warehouse management systems, which Amazon has a very like invented here uh, ethos. So they had written all of their own warehouse software and we were really integrating with this, with their technology stack. And so those first integrations were, and they were very intense. Like we flew out to Seattle and almost every week to get up these systems. So the pace was incredibly fast and the demands were incredibly high. So we had made something like five or 6,000 robots ever when we got acquired. And the over the next year and a half, the mandate was to do many times that number of robots. And to this day, I don't have any particular inside information. There are hundreds of thousands of those robots. So really, I was just involved in that those first couple of projects right after the acquisition. And luckily, we didn't actually have to change the technology that much just because it, we had done an effective job of solving it within us other customer sites. I'm curious, like reflecting on your experience going through that whole process, what do you think a key component of a successful post-acquisition journey? Yeah, I don't know that I understand m a that well either, but this was an incredibly successful acquisition, right? Like the same technology is automating all of Amazon's warehouses now. But yeah, it's interesting to see the difference between the Kiva acquisition by Amazon, where it was really a drop-in-place technology. It was a capability that was just like unlocked a ton of value. And like comparing that with, so Roche acquired Flatiron later in my career, and it was really, that acquisition was really more just like, don't touch or integrate at all. You know, Roche as a pharmaceutical company, their philosophy, they're a conglomerate. They own lots of other pharmaceutical companies, right? They own Genentech and other pharmaceutical companies. And so the way that's run is really with a lot of subsidiaries, whereas Amazon really, I think the line for maybe one or two months was we're going to keep your culture totally intact. And maybe a year, two years later, a couple of years later, we were Amazon Robotics and no longer Kiva. So really collaborating with us and eventually swallowing our culture. But I think going into the acquisition, they knew it was an incredibly good culture match to begin with. So we had very similar about, like, even if you lined up our values with their leadership principles, like taking ownership and 
a lot of our values just aligned from the outset. And so I think they knew it was a good cultural match and so could acquire the whole company and really incorporate it into their own culture. Yeah. Thanks for highlighting the importance of culture fit during this acquisition journey. So you mentioned a little bit about like Flat Art Co. So let's talk about it. After spending five years in Cambridge, you moved to New York and joined Pat Iron Hill. This is an early stage healthcare startup, and you joined as the first data high. And based on my research, you like employee number 16. How did this opportunity come about? Yeah, I think maybe it was a similar stage of my career, or I was in a similar mindset to when I was finishing grad school, where I felt really excited about the work I had been just doing and starting to think about the next thing and just had no idea what that was going to be. I was thinking about maybe starting a company, was starting to talk to a bunch of startups through connections to venture capitalists. I got connected to the Google Ventures team. So Google Ventures at that point was doing a lot of early stage investment. They've since moved into slightly later stage investment. So through the Google Ventures teams, I, I was talking to tons of startups. And I think something about 2012, 2013, there's just like a lot of like mobile apps and check-in apps. And I was like relatively uninspired and actually had a one-way ticket to Bangkok. I had a bunch of airline points and I had booked a one-way ticket. I was sure I was going to do nothing at all for many months when I met Nat and Zach, so the founders of Flatiron. And it was just very refreshing after talking to check in mobile app, you take a picture of this and check in and tag your friend, which I was like desperately uninterested in. Mm. And then talking to Nat and Zach, we're like, oh, actually there's all this cancer data. We're going to build this whole ecosystem around this cancer data. It's incredibly valuable. And just like hearing that original pitch, I thought was incredibly motivating. And I think they had an amazing pitch for what I could bring to the table, which, and I think this was really Zach's insight more than my own, that I had just spent five years looking at really complex data and figuring out how to make it transparent to subject matter experts so they can make better decisions. And Zach was probably looking at this pile of oncology data at Flatiron and thinking, oh yeah, that's a useful skill set. We probably need that at Flatiron. So I came, so that was really the pitch was Flatiron is going to, the pitch on the company was Flatiron is going to partner with cancer centers get a bunch of oncology data. Oncology data is incredibly valuable because it explains the disease states. There's a lot of different disease states in cancer and what drugs people are getting. And it turns out the clinical trials themselves aren't producing great data just because of how hard it is to run clinical trials and how limited the patient populations are in oncology. What we're going to do at Flatiron is use this real world data and try to advance cancer care, whether that's by clinical trials or real world evidence, like understanding how drugs are behaving in the real world. So when I joined, we had one cancer center that we were partnering with. And my job, my first title was integration manager, which was like a very unsexy title. And my job was to get data from those cancer centers, organize it and put it into some sort of rational form so we could start building data products on it. And so that original role was like the pitch wasn't the pitch was broader right the pitch was eventually you can do things that are more interesting but we have these very immediate problems around data integration and ingestion 
an mm-hmm. organization. So like a few criteria here, the mission of the company is solving a very pressing needs in, in healthcare, the opportunities to advance your career as the first data high, as well as the complexity of the, of the product itself, working with unconscious data and basically borrowing some of your previous experiences at Kiva and applying that to a completely new domain. So, so what convinced you to onboard the flat iron house startup journey? Yeah, I think that's a great recap. Let's talk about like your actual journey building out the data team at flat iron. You spend about five and a half years there and you help build the data instance engineering team from scratch. And you wrote this blog post back in May 2018 that basically explaining how this team can help Aaron build useful data products. So could you mind kind of sharing the motivation and the evolution behind the journey of building this team? Yeah, so when I joined Flatiron, again, I was an integration manager and I was doing a lot of the data schlepping, like figuring out how to get data from one place to the other. And just to give you a little context on that, this was 2013. So we couldn't use AWS because AWS was not HIPAA compliant. A lot of our customers were either dealing with proprietary databases or MS SQL databases. So we were literally just copying those databases over using Azure. And it was just tons of very difficult manual moving of data around. Having said that, that wasn't even the hardest part. The hardest part was figuring out the applications. So when I joined, I was doing a bunch of this data moving around and trying to clean it. But I think what I quickly found was the challenge of ingesting and integrating the data was not just that the data was in weird formats or was messy, but I didn't know what the endpoints were. So I didn't know like what we were actually going to use the data for. So cancer centers weren't really using our technology yet, and we didn't have a clear vision of what that was. So what data should I be grabbing? And it was like, and where should I be focusing my quality efforts? And so I quickly, I think this was the systems approach that we used at Kiva before in Amazon Robotics, which was I quickly got involved in the product development process just because I saw it as necessary. I I really wanted to figure out what the actual data products we were going to deliver to our customers was, and then work backwards from there to figure out how we needed to ingest data. And so that's how I went from integration manager to data insights and starting this role was the pitch was that we really needed a systems thinking, customer centric data team that could close the loop and talk to customers, figure out what their requirements were. And then go back to the source systems and figure out if it was even possible from all the source data and then integrate that data accordingly. So it was a really an end-to-end and systems-oriented data role that that we established. And I think it was like incredibly effective. We were involved in launching almost all of the data products that that Flatiron launched. I see. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the context. Yeah, I really focus on having that customer-centric product thinking mindset and then walking backwards. Like I think that's what you mentioned earlier. And to the point, can you provide some examples of the data products your team health bill at Flatiron? Yeah. So there was early, like the very earliest tools that we used to hook in and get 
cancer centers excited were just basic, really business intelligence tools like population health discovery tools. There was a lot of focus on revenue cycle management. Ultimately, every cancer center is also a business and they care about things like revenue operations and cancer drugs are incredibly expensive. So doing things like auditing the billing of cancer drugs was a really powerful thing for these really scrappy, in a way they were small businesses that had to do, that were dealing with this incredibly expensive uh, inventory. And if they messed it up, they could go out of business, right? So if they messed up drug billing on something that cost 10, 15, $20,000, they could go out of business if they were billing for that incorrectly or didn't bill it to insurance companies correctly. So there was a lot of on the revenue cycle management side and later on clinical trials. And ultimately, the thing that I think I was most proud of was actually our internal data products. So at a certain point, we were building all these data products and realized that we had to go back to the source systems and build out a data product and data assets for every single data product that we had to create and figured out that if we had some sort of intermediate representation, like a data warehouse, it was going to make that process way more efficient. So we spent a lot of time working on our central data warehouse and we pretty much actually stopped work on user-facing products we had to for to refactor everything for a solid year to really focus on the central data warehouse. And I think that really unlocked future product development. So really focusing on the quality of our internal data products, like our data warehouse, was Mm -hmm. a huge unlock as well. Perfect. I want to follow up to that answer with two extra points. Number one is that external product, right? Some of your experience working on ecological data and working with cancer plans, what have you seen to be some of the major challenges of cancer research from an insider perspective? Advancement in the field and what the main barriers of using technology to improve condition of cancer patient? I think my meta, I, and maybe this is the reason that I got out of healthcare, but I think actually the biggest problems are just alignment of incentives. Mm-hmm. And this gets a little bit more philosophical maybe, but Ultimately, we treat medicine like this purely capitalist system where, but like when your life is on the line, it's not just whether I'm going to buy a cheeseburger at Wendy's or McDonald's and like free markets rule, like I'm willing to spend any amount of money. And actually the decision maker is often different than who's thinking about paying the bill. So there's just like very misaligned incentives. And so one of the, I think we had a lot of positive impact at Flatiron, but one of the things that was really frustrating is lots of times you would see things that you thought almost certainly should have been done, right? Mm -hmm. Like for patients and just like better care navigation and all these things that could have benefited patients, but there just wasn't a model that could pay for it. Like insurance, should insurance companies pay for it? And oftentimes insurance companies wanted to pay for it, but they needed to see that it actually had some sort of like effect or financial effect or that it could make cost of care more efficient. And so it was really hard to just like seeing things that you thought should clearly happen and seeing patients that should definitely get access to drugs and and things like that. And I think that's probably the most challenging part of healthcare is just aligning incentives properly so that 
patients get the best care. Yeah. Incentive misalignment. And then you also brought up the point about how impactful this internal data products, which are team bill for the organization. For instance, like the central data warehouse. And this is like 2016, 2017-ish area. I guess the modern data stack hasn't really existed yet. So how did your team, for instance, come up with practices to like build your internal data products? Where did you get inspired from? How did you choose open source solution, build versus buy? All those kind of questions. Yeah, so we didn't have Redshift at that point. So we were actually, the first versions of the data warehouse were actually in SQL Server because a lot of our source data was in SQL Server. So just integrated into SQL Server. We built a lot of our own tools and hacked together a lot of our own tools. We used a bit of Tableau for visualization. We later used a product called Carabell, which was an open source solution, which later became Superset. Later, actually, after I left, we were using Looker. So it was literally almost all the visualization tools. And on the storage layer, we went from SQL Server to Redshift and more Postgres-oriented solutions after, after SQL Server. And actually, one of the big innovations that we built was an ETL tool that we called Blocks that was just a really ergonomic for SQL-oriented folks. So it looked maybe something like DBT. In a lot of ways, it was actually incredibly different than DBT, but the main characteristic of it, it was accessible to people who only knew SQL and to folks like biostatisticians could use this tool to a certain degree. My team was definitely using this tool and we built out incredibly complex DAGs of data pipelines based on our sort of internal data warehouse. And so that was really a big unlock. If it was today, we'd probably use something like DBT, but that tool that we invented was... And so back then, we did a lot of building. We did a lot of building ourselves and it's because a lot of the tools were fairly immature that were on the market. Yeah, thanks for sharing the context of the early days there. You also have written quite a lot about just hiring the other people at the knowledge startup from intervening for product scale to even broad discipline of the first generous data hire. So can you share some of the key learnings from hiring for your data team at Fatiron? Yeah, it was really hard because we had this very systems-oriented way of thinking about data. And so one of the key things that we hired for was actually product skills. And so this wasn't like building a two-by-two and like product, pure product case studies. It was more, we have this data set, we have this customer, I'm doing a case study of how would you think about serving this customer? What would you do? What would you build? And I think... The insight there was just that one of the hardest things about data at a small organization is how you prioritize what you should build. Like the software development stack and software development in general has this whole set of disciplines to help support it, right? Product managers, QA people, but on the products, on data side, Oftentimes, data teams are just left to their own to try to figure out how to prioritize things, how to figure out and discover use cases. Maybe that's changing a little bit more now, but certainly in the Flatiron days, we had to figure out 
how to prioritize and how to like what things were worth building. So I think hiring for product skills was by far one of the probably most unique things that, that we did at Flatiron. And we had a minimum bar for every single hire, which made hiring incredibly difficult. So typically what we would do is make sure that they could figure out use cases, had some product orientation, had customer empathy. And then we were looking for a, a spike in one of a few different areas, technical areas. So there was a minimum requirement on data modeling, but then we were looking for a spike in something like statistics or coding or machine learning. Yeah, thanks for sharing the context. Yeah, it's very interesting that emphasis product mindset, which I think that not a lot of other organizations actually focus on. And also in terms of the data team's structure itself, I'm curious, how did you structure your team? What are the different function divisions within data engineering team? So Flatiron was a very matrixed organization. We had different product initiatives and different product initiatives worked cross-functionally. So there might be three software engineers, one biostatistician, and a data insights engineer, and a product manager, and maybe a designer. And all of those folks were working together. The team that had the cross-functional initiative that had the most data insights folks was probably our central data warehouse team, which had a lot of just data organization that had to happen. But the everybody was just staffed out to different organizations. And I think that's really convenient. One of the existential things that I hear data teams talk about is like, how do you justify your ROI? How do you justify whether you should exist? How do you justify your headcount? This made it trivially easy because we would, teams would just ask for data insights people. And if we had a good reputation in the organization, you know, we always had tons of headcount open because people were always asking for data insights people because it helped the product move forward. And if you were starting a clinical trials product, it was clear to people that you needed a couple data insights people because they were just going to drive that product forward in a really substantial way. And so it takes away a lot of the guesswork around how you justify to the organization because each product line justifies the ROI of your data folks. So this is a very staffed out model for a data team. Yeah, like a very decentralized way when each I see got embedded into various functions. And then the challenge becomes, how do you develop norms? How do you still feel like a team? So we had a weekly meeting where we did lots of cross-functional learning. And that became another superpower of the Data Insights team is that we would see trends across the entire organization. And it reminds me of the early APM program at Google the APMs were staffed out, but had this central culture, like the data insights team had a similar advantage where we were meeting every week and talking about the 12 different initiatives across the company and comparing notes and able to think about how data was working differently in each of those different organizations and had this superpower of being able to connect the dots and find areas of collaboration and learning across the whole org. I'm sure the cross-functional with the rest of mentioned as well as these meetings to glue the, the team together is really impactful for imposing the data-driven culture to the rest of the company. 
Yeah. Now, so you were at Flat Iron for close to six years. And then towards September 2019, you move on and you've been the co-founder and CEO of Lint, which is building a new way to make data exploration and visualization accessible to everyone. Can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Yeah, I think this is an idea I've always had in the back of my head, which is I just, we dealt with a lot of visualization tools and they all had their benefits. But when you think about how big of a category like data visualization and reporting is, like what was the thing that was like the last product in the category? Like what is that go-to way of visualizing data that you were excited to give to somebody on an operations team? And I just never felt like I found my tool. It felt like there was like something missing in my tool set. And there's a couple, like a bunch of anecdotes from Flatiron of me trying to empower folks with data and stumbling at various points and like having, realizing how much education was involved. So remember specific times giving data sets over to operations folks and having the data like completely cleaned. The operations person knew exactly what they wanted. They got it into Tableau. I meet with them a week later to see what they had done with the data. You have three Sankey charts, like three pie charts. And it hadn't really been shared with anybody and was just thinking to myself. And at that point, really taught and tried to coach folks on how to think about approaching data visualization, how to make this accessible for other people. Because ultimately, when you're building a data visualization, you're building a sort of data product, right? You're, you, it's something that needs to be consumed by somebody else. So it doesn't just have to make sense to that one operations team member. And trying to coach people through it, there's just like so many common patterns for how to approach these problems. But the user interfaces of these visualization tools was always the same and didn't feel like it was particularly ergonomic. So I left Flatiron and started doing a bunch of consulting and had a relatively open mind, was thinking about a bunch of different data product ideas and companies that I could start, but found myself very often implementing incredibly expensive solutions at small startups that wouldn't use necessarily all the features of them and still just had a hard time setting up like a solid reporting layer for folks. And so really just started prototyping on my own, like coding the very first versions of Glean and a really accessible way to start visualizing data. Really just started creating prototypes, got really excited about it, started showing it to a couple people. And that's, that, that's enough to get yourself motivated and excited about starting something. So yeah. I think just like those first early demos of what this could look like and what a future of data visualization could look like convinced me to start the company. So it's just something that you've always been having in the back of your mind. That's, and that makes sense that you decided to pivot and focus or your energy into this problem. One thing that I want to just go a bit deeper on, which is the story here, which is, so you left fire and like towards the tail end 2019, and then you didn't introduce clean until like earlier 2022. So that was like almost two years prototyping your product. Can you, yeah, share a little bit about what happened during those two years, the journey of 
reading the MVP and showing them always how's it like working on the early phase of Pubchart Startup. Yeah, I think Glean is really a very ambitious product in that there's a lot of competition and I know that. So I've always known that I was going to have to be patient with this and that if you wanted to rethink this relatively crowded and competitive space, that it was going to take some time. And I really started off on my own, just like making sure that the concepts I had were strong. So was writing React on my own and JavaScript and really hacking around and taking my time, like thinking through what the core concepts had to be. And then slowly started hiring a team and getting customers. And before we did this broader announcement, we had been building with actual customers using the product for over a year before we announced it. So yeah, it was probably a year to get to something that was like useful enough and solved enough use cases and address enough pain points that we could recruit these early development partners and a year of them using it and really trying it within their organizations before we felt comfortable that we could onboard a ton more customers. Like we didn't want to do a big announcement and onboard a ton of companies before we were ready and thought that the solution was amazing and could offer a ton of advantages over what's out there today. Yeah. We're talking about some of those aspects of customer acquisition later on, but thanks for emphasizing on patience, which is really key here for early stage founder. And also I'm curious, what's the meaning behind the name Glint? Glean? Glean just, it's actually a term that means to like pick up the morsels after you like harvest a crop. Okay. It's like picking up the morsels after that. And I think the term comes maybe from France. I should probably know this better, but where folk like poor people would go and grab these little morsels after. And so like in the modern term just means to, to get something out of. So yeah. to glean an insight is to discover something from the data. And I really see that as the core way that I think about data is you start with this heap of data and you, you slowly organize it, you model it, and you build on layers of meaning. And you do that to the effect of hopefully people being able to dig through it and find their own insights. Yeah, thanks for sharing the context. Let's take deeper into some of the technical problems that Glint uh, is built to solve. So in the lunch blog post, on this year, you argue that data visualization and exploration are broken. So my question is twofold. First, could you mind explaining these pain points in more detail? And then second, what are some of the product features of Clean that address them? Yeah, and this really goes back to my experience at Flatiron, trying to coach people on how to analyze data, how to visualize data, and how to start getting into a new data set. And every tool that has that is accessible to folks outside of the data team has a very similar user experience, which is you have a data set, you start dragging some columns around, you start permuting through different visualization types, and hope you come up with something interesting. And that's how you're onboarded onto those tools. And if you think it's a combinatorial problem, right? If you have 20 or 30 columns in your data set and there's a few different places that you can drag these and a few different chart parameters, 
Like the number of possible charts that you can come up with in the first five minutes is probably hundreds of millions or billions of different charts that you could probably conceive of. And the reality is like probably 0.001% of those is what you should be starting with. And every single time I was coaching somebody on visualization and analytics, I would start with a time series, profiling the data, starting to get into the data. And so I see it really as a user experience problem that data tools are really designed for like Tableau is actually, it's an amazing product. Like the visualizations you can create with it are amazing. And that's supposed to be the most accessible tool I found that it was still really hard to get started with and a lot of similarity with all the other tools that I saw on the market. And so what Glean offers is an automatic visualization and profiling at the outset. And this isn't some like esoteric, we run tons of ML and try to figure out what's going on. It's just a guided workflow, exactly the workflow that I would use to coach people on visualization, which is starting with exploratory data analysis, looking at trends over time, and showing you a ton of those things right out of the box. So you go through a modeling workflow where you define some metrics declaratively, and it just puts you into this very visual, very interactive explorer and allows folks that are somewhat familiar with data, but not visualization experts to start clicking into data. And I think the other observation here on like data visualization and analytics is just that Analytics is a skill in and of itself that is separate from coding and technical skills. And I've seen people who are incredibly strong at analytics that have no coding abilities. And actually, I had people on my data team who were incredibly good at data engineering, but really bad at actually visualizing data. And you have folks like this all over your organization. And so creating a guided workflow that really teaches people about good visualization. And if you're a data engineer and you actually feel awkward at that dashboard building part because like you're not that good at it. Glean really walks you through and gives you something that you can share with your team and you don't have to be embarrassed of. And so, so just having really strong defaults, doing a lot of this automatic visualization is the core value proposition of Glean. Strong default. Enable the engineers to do self-serve visualization, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's also uh, to prep for this call, I, I watched the uh, the loomed demo that you given on the documentation about main and we should include that insurance as well for anyone who go to that experience that that kind of yeah it's, it's really more of a see the workflow rather it's hard to explain like what our automatic visualization looks like and that it is intuitive so yeah definitely watching the video will help yeah. you understand another critical capabilities of plain is data ops which brings modern developer workflow to the business intelligence layer and prevents broken dashboard. Yeah, so my question is also twofold. First, like how have dashboard traditionally been done in small and large data teams? And secondly, how does the clean data ops capabilities address some of these shortcomings? Yeah, so a lot of what I've talked about so far is clicking around and finding some insights, which is the, it's the fun part. And I think clean really makes it fun. The challenge with dealing with a scaled organization is that sometimes those one-off little dashboards and analytics that you thought were temporary become incredibly important and like mission critical. And all of a sudden, everybody cares about this one dashboard. And what happens is there's a few things that happen. One is as your organization grows, 
the upstream dependencies from this dashboard are probably growing. So there's a mess of data pipelines that is, are happening before that dashboard actually gets materialized and before the chief revenue officer sees the dashboard. So a lot of complexity upstream. The quality matters. And the reality is you actually want to iterate faster on this dashboard now because you know you have a new revenue line and now you want to incorporate it in. So you have all these additional development requirements on these dashboards that emerge. And like the change management in modern data tools is like terrible. Like the way that we managed this at Flatiron was really like just trying to sync and coordinate. You would change a bunch of pipelines and then you would try to change like downstream dashboards at the same time. You would try to come up with staging environments, but there just weren't really good workflows for it. Sometimes you would literally just like change stuff, wait for downstream things to break, and then you would fix it. And so the idea behind data ops inside of Glean is that Glean wants to give you this freewheeling experimentation. Everybody's clicking around in the data. And honestly, if you just want to, we have customers that just use Glean in that mode that are early stage and they don't need to worry about data ops or anything. The reality is that sometimes dashboards get shared with customers. They become production products and you should check those in. So Glean data ops has a few different components. Every resource in Glean can be exported as configuration files and then managed under configuration. And then we have a build tool that allows you to build resources in Glean in continuous integration. So we have a CLI that allows you to build these resources. And I think the most important feature is a feature we call previews, which allows you to see with a proposed set of changes, allows you to run a command and create an alternate view of your entire analytics stack if you applied a set of changes. And so this really accelerates teams because now you want to add a new revenue line. You can propose that change in a pull request. You mm-hmm. can see your entire environment in this sort of duplicated state without touching your production analytics. You can show it to your chief revenue officer and say, here's a containerized, isolated view of what the analytics are going to look like after I add this revenue line. And does it look good to you and play around with it for a week or whatever, then merge it in and deploy it into production. So it's really probably, I think, one of the more sophisticated workflows for analytics development when those dashboards become production products that that you really want to maintain the quality of. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And especially that all the capabilities that you just mentioned really enable the users to collaborate better with their teammates, right? And then especially the one on preview, you can see them the changes before deploying the production support in, into the production environment, which is great because you can dissipate change and then don't have to roll back any commits necessary. So it's great to, to see that influence of software engineering best practices to the modern data workflow. I guess throughout your career, we talk about how you want to treat data as a product problem. And then that's also the mission, I guess, the, the overarching code play as well, which is really help data teams to rethink the user experience and technologies to visualize and interact with data. So given that sort of vision, can you share some of the exciting initiatives on Clean's product roadmap in the near future to fulfill that vision? 
Yeah. So I think we've talked about it a fair amount, but ultimately products are about people and understanding the various personas that are interacting. And I think the hard thing about data products and something like reporting and business intelligence is that you have all these very diverse stakeholders. You've got the executives that just want to check numbers once a day, you've got fairly analytical people who want to dig around in the data, and you have engineers, platform engineers that are maintaining the systems. But I think our approach of thinking of this platform as a product and of data as a product within a single organization is really focused on these different personas and making incredible tools for each of those sets of personas. And so initiatives that we have coming up to help those different personas also collaborate and have a really amazing experience. Like right now, a big focus of ours, really what we just shipped was a workbench that looks more like a SQL IDE that is awesome for more technical analytics engineers and more technical folks. So really focused on that persona and pushing that forward. Coming out of that big launch, which we just pushed last week, we're focused on our charting and visualization library. So Glean intentionally only has a handful of chart types but they're highly configurable and rearrangeable. This is really from a usability perspective. If you, like I see a lot of tools that have 50, 60 chart types and as as if that's a good thing, I, I guess having those options is good. But if you're a user that's just trying to see some data, having 50 chart types can be incredibly overwhelming. And so we're trying to make a core set of chart types, like the typical Cartesian charts, pivot tables, and those types of charts that are just like the workhorses and just do tons of work inside of organizations. We're trying to make those really amazing. And that means as we push our visualization library forward, means making it more configurable. So we're adding more complex tables, more complex calculations, trellising, and trying to make our visualization library is still equally approachable, but incredibly configurable so that we can teach people how to do more complex types of visualizations in a safe way. So visualization libraries is inc- like a big area of focus of, for us over the next probably couple months. And the other piece is just collaboration, better collaboration. So we now have pretty big teams using Glean. So just having better inline documentation having better commenting and things like that is is going to be critical as we get those larger scale teams onto the product. Yeah, and sharing that visualization library and features to enable inter-communication inside teams. Definitely yeah. glad to look forward to some of the upcoming release new features within Blink. So let's take up your product head and put on your CEO head. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any early stage startup founder. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Green's mission? Yeah, and I think hiring hiring is all about culture. Like the best mechanism you have to influence culture is like finding the right people that appreciate your culture and values. And so just putting, trying to interweave your values and your culture into your hiring process is incredibly critical. And when I think about the culture that I want to build at Glean, I really look back to the data insights team at Flatiron and like just the energy we had when we were that team, just like 
bubbling with ideas, like just super innovative people throwing out ideas, like feeling really just like safe enough to just throw out and disagree with each other and have that open collaboration, trying to get to the best answers. So that's what I use as the endpoint in the model for what I want to build at Glean. And the way you attract that is you have to find folks who are excited about ownership, taking ownership, really being in the driver's seat, who are going to be really collaborative, who aren't assholes and are going to make people feel unsafe. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say asshole, but so just people who are going to be super collaborative. And another learning from Flatiron is I was a first time manager and had never really hired folks before. I remember after the first few hires looking around the room and everybody looked the same and putting the brakes on hiring and realizing like we, we really had to rethink how we were reaching out to folks and who we were engaging and trying to recruit and did a really good job of building a really diverse and eclectic team. And I think that's also a huge goal of ours at Glean. And I think you do it through a hiring process. So you try to put a lot of energy into evaluating for the right things. That's ownership, that's collaboration, innovation, and technical excellence. And people, I think candidates see when you take this very seriously and when you have a very organized set of, of requirements and the way I think about hiring is also just like a two-way street. Just like at Flatiron, we have to make a value proposition to a candidate. They have to see how their careers are going to unfold inside of an organization. So just making sure that it's a two-way evaluation, that you teach about the product, you teach about your values, and that they're going to be excited to take their next step with Glean. Yeah, thanks for sharing the playbook that you used to buy the right hand to Glean. It's really Emphasizing on the importance of defining these sort of cultural values in advance and then publicize it in candidates when they come in, the pipeline, they can see your values and they have a better picture of how their company is going to look like. And then that makes their decision to be much, much easier. And also, thanks for talking about that notion of diversity as well. I'm curious, how did you actually like source it in your pipeline to enable a diverse workforce? Yeah, so I had the luck of that point of working with a recruiter. So we were sourcing a lot of folks. And I think the best place to address those sorts of issues are just at the top of the funnel. So it's, there's some like holding events and being engaged with events. We actually found candidates through that, but it's like really focusing on reaching out to diverse folks at the top of your funnel, making sure that there's good representation throughout your entire hiring funnel. Finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any of the price product. What have been some of the challenges that your team had to overcome to find these early design partners? Yeah, I think it's been particularly hard in for business intelligence. There's a lot of incredibly stable options that are good for folks. So it's really about, for me, it was a ton of networking. I know a lot of data folks. So networking and just like pitching people the idea and finding this also helps you find what the major pain points are. Uh, I think, yeah, I don't know that there's a silver bullet except just like pounding the pavement 
talking to tons of people, pitching the ideas over and over and trying to hone in on what the pain points are and who's experiencing those pain points. Uh, it was just a lot of pitching over and over again to it's a two-way street of figuring out, honing what the pain points are that you're trying to focus on and finding areas of the market that are receptive to that. But it takes a lot of, especially in a competitive market, I think you should just, this is a thing that I think founders oftentimes get frustrated with. And I've seen people give up is that sales and sales in a competitive space is a lot of failure, right? You're going to talk to a lot of people and they're going to want to stick with Looker or whatever tools they're using. And that's fine, right? You don't need every single person to adopt at a super early stage. You just need to have the tenacity to and conviction that there's something out there and pull on that thread and find your early believers and your early adopters just by pure repetition, pure just like talking to as many people as possible. Of course, how did you personally cultivate that tenacity? I think I'm a naturally stubborn person, maybe like a little bit stubborn. I think you have to do, I don't know, like I hear a lot of advice on picking a startup idea. And if you listen to my advice, it would be terrible, which is get super deep in an area for 10 years and grow to have an immense amount of conviction around an idea and then just be incredibly stubborn around it. That's not a repeatable set of advice that I can give to another person. But yeah, I think having a lot of conviction in your idea and with some evidence and some market evidence and where do, where do I get, like, probably I get my tenacity from my parents or something, right? Like my parents are both immigrants and my mom is like a Cuban refugee and it's just, very tenacious person and probably there's you can read about it but i think there's a certain amount of it that yeah that it's just quality you have we talk about dealing with employers with customers and the last side group of folks i want to talk about is investors so playing this phrase seven million citra this far from mission partners and some other very well-known product and data angels what fundraising advice could you give to fathers who are seeking the right investors for the startups? Yeah. And I guess it's probably right now a challenging fundraising environment. I think it's not actually the way I think about investors generally is they're like employees. They're not going to have nearly as much impact as employees. Probably the money is obviously useful, but the way that I, I think about finding investors is like finding the folks who want to join your journey. It's not that different than finding and recruiting your first customers or your first employees. You, in a way, you have to carve out a path for them too. You're helping your investors do something too. Like they have motivations and ways that they're motivated as well. So I don't know that I have a silver bullet for finding investment. Most of it is just preparation, right? Don't spend all of your time looking for investment. Spend your time preparing and figuring out what the market is and having an amazing story around that and building proof points on what that story is and then have that in the back of your pocket when you're talking to investors. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for 
providing us that context. So Carlos, this by our conversation, I want to move to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can provide quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data community whose work you admire. Three people who I admire. Um, I would say Vicky Boykis is a person who I've followed for a long time. Had an awesome blog, still blogs every once in a while, but just like really honest take on data and SQL and analytics and machine learning and software development and getting into that. And I think also just a funny person. Love following on Twitter. I'll call out Anthony Goldblum, founder of Kaggle, also an investor of ours. I just really appreciate what Kaggle does. And it's really the focus is on education and engagement and aspirationally Glean could be that sort of platform that just like really increases access and education of data. And then I have to put somebody like Wes McKinney and he has been particularly important almost to the evolution of Glean too. Like we use Apache Arrow for serialization and we have built... We're building on the shoulders of giants. There's tons of people who have built amazing products and projects and open source tools that have been incredibly valuable. And without those, like, would not, we would not be nearly as effective and our products wouldn't be nearly as good. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for data people to cultivate a product-centric message. I don't know that there's a lot of great product data books yet. The one that stands out to me is actually from Ikeva days and from operations and warehousing, the Toyota way, which really informs, I think, just product development and how you do things in general and just management theory. Like a lot of software development philosophy comes from agile and lean and manufacturing philosophies. But I think people lose the force for the trees on those philosophies often. So like they're they have to do agile and they have to do their retro and their standups and all these like very specific ceremonies, like going back to the original principles and the Toyota way has like great descriptions of just like different philosophies on how you problem solve, how you do continuous improvement, how you get close to your customers, how you think in a long-term way. And I think those foundational leadership principles are like really amazing and helpful in data products and all products really. Thanks for sharing and finally, imagine that you could send out a single tweet or oh, the early stage data practitioner on Twitter. What could you tweet about? This is a terrible question for me because I'm like, I'm a lurker on Twitter. But I think if I was going to send out something to folks, to data folks, I think data folks get really into their tools and like solving the questions and the problems with data. I think oftentimes lose the human aspect of it. So it'd be something like just go talk to people to answer the question. So maybe at random, like once every few weeks, you have a data question that you're trying to answer and you're going to write a bunch of SQL or whatever it is to try to answer that question. Instead of that, like literally just think about who the one human that could possibly answer that question effectively that could be representative could be. Go try to find that human and just ask them the question. You're trying to figure out, do these folks like go through the funnel in this way? Just like literally go ask and interview one of those people. I think the 
the skill set of zooming out and seeing aggregated millions of data points and being able to zoom in and build up like stories around very specific data points is an incredible skill. And I see it as really undervalued in, in for data practitioners. Talk to your end users and construct user stories based on certain data points. I think that's a great way to end our conversation. So Carlos, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, learning about your education back in Cornell, getting interested in ML, robotics, and the art. Your early career working at Kiva System, building an analytics product for robotics. Your time building the data insertion engineering from scratch at Pat Arnhell. As well as your current journey with Clint, building the modern data exploration and visualizations platform for practitioners to get more insights from the data, various technical perspective regarding their product development, finding early adopters, hiring talents, and fundraising from investors. That would be sure to include everything that we touched today into the show notes. So listeners can have a chance to take a look, hold up, and learn more about your current journey between. So yeah, Carlos, I really enjoyed our conversation this morning, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks a lot, James. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.